Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. What are you doing this Lent? The St. Paul Center is streaming their newest video Bible study for free starting Ash Wednesday. Based on Scott Hahn's renowned covenantal theology, this is a study no one should miss. Invite your friends, Catholic or not. Don't miss your chance to see this premium study for free. Go to stpaulcenter.com to sign up today. With CMF Curo, you don't have to compromise your faith to get great health care. Finally, there is a pro-life option that respects and engages your Catholic faith with a community that supports you in living health care fully alive. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.com slash podcast. Welcome to Hilaire Belloc's Characters of the Reformation. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. As you may have realized, this reading of Belloc's classic work is an abridged version. I'm leaving out some of the chapters and I've been editing the text as we go along. Belloc's work focuses on the importance of the English Reformation, and after dealing with King James I, he goes across the Channel to show some of the fallout from the Reformation in 17th century Europe. To do this, he deals with three particular characters, Ferdinand II, the emperor in Germany, the French Cardinal Richelieu, and the Swedish king Gustavus Adolphus. To understand the full impact of the Reformation in Europe, therefore, you should also have a look at those characters. We go on now to consider the fallout of the Reformation in 17th century England by looking at Archbishop William Laud. Laud was the Protestant Archbishop of Canterbury under Charles I of England. He belonged to that generation which was born somewhat before the year 1600 and which was old by the middle of the 17th century. That is, by the time that each party in the great religious quarrel of the Reformation was dimly appreciating that the battle was a drawn one and there could be no complete victory on either side. It will be remembered that the middle of the 17th century and more particularly the date 1648, with the Treaties of Westphalia, marks the moment of exhaustion on the two sides. After it, what used to be united Christendom was permanently divided into the two camps of Catholic and Protestant. Lord, as Archbishop of Canterbury, was the principal figure in English official Protestantism, that is, in the new establishment set up by William Cecil and known as the Church of England. His personality is most interesting. He was of the middle ranks of society, with no special advantages of birth, and gained public attention wholly through his own energy and character. That energy was intense, and never failed him in the end. It was as great in his last days as it was in his first, and it animated a very small body, for he was almost a dwarf in size. His volume of work and correspondence was enormous, his power of attention to detail was equally great, and he followed a clear, fixed policy, with great chances of success. 
which was only defeated by the rise of a general rebellion against the English royal government, in which his own activities and office were included. The importance of Laud in any study of the great religious quarrel and its unsatisfactory drawn settlement in the 17th century is considerable, and it lies in this. He was an early example of how the great Catholic recovery, which had marked the end of the 16th century, reacted upon the Protestant world. But at the same time, Laud is a still more striking example of the way in which the Reformation had made the Protestant attitude of mind inescapable for those who had broken away from Catholic unity. In other words, the interest of his career lies in this, that in spite of certain sympathies with Catholic tradition, and in spite of their recovering certain sides of the general European culture, the Protestants throughout Europe, and even in England, were condemned to be the victims of the original violent rebellion which had taken place in their father's time. Lord was the chief and leader of those who had come to deplore the losses inflicted by the Reformation and the wounds which it had inflicted upon the normal human spirit. He was the leader and representative of those who feared and disliked Puritanism as a moral disease. He had sympathy with the natural and excellent use of images in worship, one of the counts of the indictment against him on which he was put to death was his having put up a statue of Our Lady and the Holy Child, which one may still see standing above the main door of the University Church at Oxford. He and those like him, who were now becoming numerous in the English established Protestant Church, not only felt a sentimental attraction towards the lovely and human externals of Catholic worship, but were also inclined one cannot use a stronger word, but inclined, to consider the fullness of Catholic doctrine in nearly all points. They inclined, as their descendants, the Anglo-Catholics, do today, to an explanation of the mystery of the Eucharist more and more approximating to the truth. They inclined to a sacramental penance and the sacramental view of religion in general. They were particularly strong upon the necessity of a hierarchy and upon what they hoped was in their own case and what they admitted in the case of Catholics to be the apostolic succession. They desired to regard their clergy as priests, and some of them indeed would come to even say sacrificing priests. But with all this they remained Protestant. They remained, though they would not have admitted it, thoroughly anti-Catholic, because they rejected that one part of Catholic doctrine which is its essential, the combination of unity and authority. The unity of the visible church and its invincible authority were repugnant to their growing nationalism, and those who preserved such an attitude of mind were just as much the enemies of Catholicism as the most rabid Puritan could be. Lord himself used a phrase which has become famous in this regard. He said that he could not consider reunion with Rome as she now is. Now that phrase was not only a rejection of unity— but by its wording it implied that there was no united visible church of God on earth. The use of the word Rome in this connection emphasized and was intended to emphasize the doctrine that the church of Rome has erred, which inevitably includes the doctrine that all the churches had erred, and that therefore there could never be a united, visible, infallible church. There is to be remarked, embarrassing Lord and his followers in this early stage of the great quarrel, just the same difficulty which embarrasses high churchmen, so-called Anglo-Catholics, today. It is impossible for them to give a clear definition of their position, because, while abhorring the word Protestant, they are essentially Protestant in refusing unity and in preferring a national religion 
which can include any degree of heresy, to an international religion which excludes all heresy. If you were to have asked Laud what doctrines he taught, he would have replied with some, though insufficient, definition. If you had gone on to ask him, do you separate yourself from those within your own national church who deny these doctrines? Do you cut them off from their communion? He would have had either to answer no or to remain silent. And so it is with the Anglicans today. To those Protestants of his own day who were violent against other Catholic doctrines besides that of unity, who hated the doctrine of the real presence, who detested the sacramental system, who were excited to anger at the idea of a priesthood, in other words, the Puritans, Lord and those who thought with him seemed to be half Catholic. They seemed to be leading England back to Catholicism. They were even spoken of as papists by the more extreme of their opponents. But all that was false and an illusion. In certain externals, they did propose to imitate or recover certain Catholic practices, and they did cherish an affection for much of Catholic spirit. But that which is at the very heart of the whole affair, unity and truth, they rejected. Nor did they reject it with reluctance. Their rejection of it was fundamental to their whole position. It was a position expressed in many phrases, all of which strongly illuminate its character. Thus there is the phrase which speaks of the Church of England as the Church of our Baptism. There is the phrase which calls the Pope an Italian priest. I'll take a break from Belloc here to give a personal anecdote. When I was a priest in the Church of England, it was common to hear other uh, Anglican priests refer to the Catholics as the Italian mission, or they would say condescending things like, it's all well and good for Irish navvies, Irish workmen, uh, and Italian waiters. So there was this kind of snobbish uh, nationalism amongst the Anglicans, which continues even to this day. And back to Belloc. Just as the rejection of unity, coupled with infallible authority, is the intellectual or doctrinal test of Lord's Protestantism, so in that equally important matter of the emotions and affection is repugnance for the true Church in communion with the Pope as the center of unity. This, too, is the test of his Protestantism. The Catholic Church, of its nature, excites either great loyalty or repulsion. When it excites repulsion in a man, that man is the enemy of the faith, even though he accepts the greater part of its doctrine and the greater part of its traditional externals and an organization and discipline under a hierarchy similar in name to the Catholic. Now, for the Catholic Church, Lord and his followers felt repulsion instead of affection. They felt, to use a modern phrase, that it was un-English. In other words, their religion must be national, and the fact that a true and universal religion must necessarily be international was to them a strong irritant. It is this which explains the deep and permanent sympathy which existed between Lord and his king, Charles I, who had made him archbishop. Charles had not the same sentiment of sympathy with many Catholic externals that Lord had. He was, in fact, by temperament what we would call an evangelical— an experience of his very early youth, his voyage to Spain and the failure of his royal marriage there, had emphasized his strong dislike of Catholicism. He sincerely believed that the Church of England, as he had known it, with its ceremonies and ministers and boyhood, was the most perfect Christian organization, and therefore his attitude implied that there could be many such organizations side by side, many churches, and no one infallible authoritative church. 
If I could take a break here again and remind you that King Charles I is the son of James I, who was brought up as a Protestant and who inherited the throne, of course, from Elizabeth. Charles I disliked the Mass in spite of his increasing affection for his Catholic wife, the sister of the King of France. He disliked the Catholic priesthood and their whole spirit. He had nothing about him of what we call today High Anglican. Yet he got on capitally with Laud and Laud with him, the reason being that the real devotion of each was towards the royal and national power, the complete independence of the English realm, and the English king being independent from all other authority, spiritual and temporal. The effort at unity which Laud made had little to do with spiritual unity, even within his own communion. He was there concerned with unity of practice, with imposing a similar liturgy upon England, Scotland, and Ireland, and for the sake of dignity and for the sake of historical tradition, Lord would see to it that the liturgy was interpreted in terms of considerable pomp and careful ritual. But he did not impose dogma. He was determined that the English communion should be the only communion service wherever the King of England ruled, that it should be given at the altar rails and not haphazard at a table, that the elements should be received kneeling, and so forth. But he was content to leave aside the essential definition of what the real presence was, whether or no Jesus Christ appeared on the altar at the consecrating words of a priest. These, which are to the Catholic mind the essentials, seem to him things no doubt important, but not essential. The essential was the unity of the Church of England and its independence from the general Christendom of Europe. The activities of Lord's life and the manner of his death have between them made him of considerable effect upon the subsequent history of the Anglican Church. His activities were political, strongly supporting that monarchical government which was then the traditional government of England, personal government by a king, responsible to the nation, the centering of power in an individual whose duty it should be to defend the weak against the strong and prevent the wealthier classes from lording it over their fellows. The interests of the wealthy, the merchants and money-dealers of the city of London, the interests of the squires and the great landowners, all these made for rebellion against the power of a personal king. In many, the movement was hardly conscious. Many hesitated to join the rebellion. Very many went against their own class interests and defended the monarchy when it came to the actual issue of arms. Nevertheless, what are called the English civil wars were essentially a struggle between wealth and the crown. Early in that struggle, the interests of wealth allied themselves to and were mixed with the violent religious passions of Puritanism. A very large proportion of landowners and a far larger proportion of the great merchants were Puritan. Therefore, as the struggle increased in violence, Lord became the target for a double attack. He had repressed Puritanism in religion. He had supported personal monarchy in politics. His person was seized by the rebels. He was imprisoned, and at last they put him to death. Such a career and such a termination to it created what may be called the legacy of Lord. Politically, that legacy came to nothing. The victory of the wealthier classes in England was so complete, and the corresponding defeat of the monarchy so thorough, that the very idea of government by a king died out in about half a century after Lord's death. One long lifetime after his beheading on Tower Hill, the English throne was filled by a puppet monarch who was not even allowed to attend the governing council of the realm. And from that day onwards, England has been governed by the great landowners and by the money dealers of the city of London.' 
but the legacy of law in ecclesiastical matters had more vitality. It fell very low during the 18th century, but it was revived before the end of that century when a sermon, famous in its time, was preached from the pulpit of the University Church of Oxford in favor of sacramental absolution and the revival of the sacrament of penance in the Church of England. Belloc is referring here to the sermons preached by uh, John Henry Newman, which began the Oxford movement, the high church or Anglo-Catholic movement in the Church of England. There followed in the same lifetime the Tractarian movement, and there now exists in greater force than has hitherto been known a Laudian spirit acting in varying degrees throughout the one great section of the English Protestant Church. The more devoted followers of that spirit go far beyond Laud himself in their imitation of Catholicism, and even in the attempt to recover the spirit of that from which they are separated. A considerable minority express themselves openly in favor of reunion with the Catholic Church, which Laud himself rejected. Such is the legacy of Laud. We must beware of being led by its present form from reading into his own life more than that life meant. He was in his own time distinctly and clearly anti-Catholic, wholly devoted to a separate English church, of which the special mark was refusal of communion with the Catholic Church as a whole and rejection completely of its authority. But he does show how the recovery of Catholicism after the first assaults of religious revolution affected one section of Protestantism in Europe. As against this, within the same Protestant society, was organized the Calvinistic spirit manifested as Puritanism. By an accident of war, the man who became most prominent in that connection was Oliver Cromwell. Thank you for listening to Characters of the Reformation. If you'd like to learn more about church history, why not go over to the podcast section of my blog, which can be found at dwightlongenecker.com. There you can listen to my 23-part series of church history, Triumphs and Tragedies. This 23-part series basically gives one episode per century and takes you through the entire 2,000-year history of the Catholic Church. Thank you again for listening. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com. CMF Curo is the country's first Catholic healthcare ministry to provide an affordable health sharing solution rooted in Catholic teaching and community. Learn more at MyCatholicHealthcare.com slash podcast. That's MyCatholicHealthcare.com slash podcast.